I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist. This is part two of my interview with leading urologist and bladder expert, Dr. Richard Viney. And this week, we're talking about men's issues. The first question from one of our readers is, I'm 60 years old, I need the loo twice in the night. My wife says I should get my PSA checked. What do you think? So Richard, can you explain what PSA is, first of all? Okay, so PSA is a protein. The words prostate-specific antigen is what PSA stands for. And an antigen is basically any substance that stimulates an antibody response. Antibody generating is where antigen comes from. And to stimulate an antibody response, you need a bit of a protein in the mix. So it's, always, it's, it's going to be principally a protein. It has a very important role in the male. It's produced in the prostate, in the bucket load. So if you look for PSA in ejaculate, it's through the roof. A little bit leaks into the blood, and that's what we test for. The role of PSA in the ejaculate is to keep it liquid in the male. And then when it gets into the female environment, it then turns it into a coagulum, so it becomes sticky and stays put. And it sticks there for about 40 minutes or so while the sperm swim off. And it acts as a platform for the swimmers, but also a barrier to other males for the in-season female. And then, of course, it then liquefies and, and comes away. So that's what PSA does. I always think about uh, Peter Parker when it comes to PSA. You know, the Spider-Man? And it's, yeah. it's, when he, it's, it's wet material. Go. It comes <laughs> flying out. And it, it sticks to the side of, of, a, of a skyscraper. But then when he's finished his swing, he needs it to come away. And so, so when he was in his bedroom working on this, I'm sure he must have had PSA in mind when creating his web mix. It's just a thought. <laughs> that's what it comes out of his wrist is what I was... <laughs> I'm going to be honest, Richard, I was not expecting that. <laughs> that's, I'm never going to watch Spider-Man again. <laughs> but but that, that'll help you remember how PSA works. And that's, okay. So it has a, has a definite physiological role and it is important. But from a blood test perspective, if there's any issues with the health of the prostate, you're going to get more PSA in the blood. Firstly, if the prostate's a little bit bigger than usual. And in men, after the age of 40, all of our prostates grow, which is really unusual in the mammalian species because most of our other organ structures decline in size. There's no obvious evolutionary advantage to this. It just happens. Dogs, uh, uh, equine species, water-going mammals and humans are pretty much it. A lot of other mammals are spare. So it's not a, a, a cross all species. It's, it's, it's an interesting process and a problematic process for the male because as it gets bigger, it drives those aging urinary symptoms that men see. So as the prostate gets bigger, you're going to get a bigger surface area for more PSA release. If you get infection or inflammation in the prostate, as if it'll, you'll see more PSA released. But equally, if you get a small tumour in the prostate, you're going to get PSA released. And it's that relationship between PSA and prostate cancer is, is, the, is, is the thing that interests us the most. Because prostate cancer is now the most common sort of cancer that superseded the rest of the lung. And um, it's a cancer of the ageing male. And as we all live longer, of course, we're going to see more prostate cancer as well. But the holy grail is having a simple blood test that can identify prostate cancer that is A, a significant prostate cancer, and B, caught early enough in which to uh, allow us as healthcare professionals to modify that patient's outcome. PSA isn't quite ticking those boxes for a number of reasons. And we still have an ongoing European trial involving hundreds of thousands of men trying to demonstrate that PSA screening is a benefit. And it might be that in time they demonstrate it is a benefit because as you observe this cohort of patients, the longer you observe them, the more the benefit becomes apparent. But we're still waiting to see a statistically significant benefit of 15 years. So should this individual have a PSA check? That's difficult because we don't 
ordinarily screen for PSA yet. We don't recommend it. However, if the, if the individual has risk factors like a strong family history of prostate or breast cancer, is of an Afro-Caribbean extraction because you know they have a much greater risk of prostate cancer than other ethnicities, then yes, I think it would be worth getting a PSA checked. But the reality is that the symptoms this individual is describing are usually a result of a multitude of different issues coming to play, some of which can be addressed from lifestyle, some of which may need a doctor to, to assess. And, and so the question mark around PSA is, that's not going to address that symptom. That is more about addressing that individual's risk perception for, for, for prostate cancer. And, you know, heart disease is still a bigger killer. And my question will be, has that individual had their blood pressure checked or their, their cholesterol lipids checked? Because that's just as much a threat to an individual as a possible diagnosis of prostate cancer maybe 10 to 15 years later after a PSA test has been done. The next question is, a friend of mine has been left with incontinence after surgery for prostate cancer. And now I've been told I need surgery too. What are the best types of surgery to try and avoid this problem as much as possible? So there's a variety of different types and stage and grade of prostate cancer. So not everyone with prostate cancer will need treatment with curative intent, which is what surgery is. We can also very effectively cure prostate cancer with radiotherapy. So it's always important when you're in this position that a specialist has told you that you need treatment with curative intent you get a wide range of opinions, not just from the surgeon, but also from an oncologist. So you two, you've got a, and, and almost certainly that individual would have had that. But occasionally people just come in with, I must have surgery and don't necessarily consider alternatives. The, the two treatment modalities have very different consequences and side effects profiles in the aftermath of the treatment. If we just go look at surgery alone, we can do an old fashioned prostatectomy for an open incision. We can do it with a macroscopic approach, which is keyhole, which is, but it's fairly limited given the relative rigidity of the instruments we use. But we now have what's called the Da Vinci robot platform, which gives you the advantage of the laparoscopic approach, where you've just got a few holes in the tummy to show for it. But the tips of these long instruments, you've got tiny little hands, basically, that can move in all sorts of directions by a surgeon who sat at a computer terminal. They all have their benefits. They all have their risks. The reality is, is that you've got to pick the right surgeon for you. Pick a surgeon you, you get on with, that you trust. Ask a little bit about his or her's experience and their results, their outcomes. And trust them. They will pick the platform that suits them best. Because in the end, if you've got a number of holes across the abdomen or one big up and down incision, within four weeks, six weeks, that's all going to be history. It's what you're left with after that with regards to your functional consequences of incompetence, impotence and also your, your cancer outcome. So you've got to be thinking about the long term here, not just what, you know, whether you're going to spend an extra few days in hospital because you've gone for an open incision. So listen to your surgeon and don't try and twist their arm because you fancy going on the robot. If that guy's rubbish on the robot, then don't go with them. Find, you know, but I wouldn't let the platform define my treatment. I'd want to find the right surgeon for me and, and, and let them choose their tools. And then so just in general, what, what are the risks of having your prostate operated on? Because there's obviously there's incontinence, there's, uh, there's other risks. Some of them is surgery more risky for, for the side effects compared to radiotherapy or is it doesn't work like that? So there are a lot of variables here. There's some with which you can control, some you can't. So if you're going to have an operation, for instance, lose weight, get fit, stop smoking. You know, those things are what you can do as a patient to help your surgeon kind of work through a lot of body fat just makes things tougher for, for the surgeon and that's going to affect your outcome. But that aside, 
other things will influence which modality is going to be better for you. The size of the prostate, the shape of the pelvis can make it difficult for the surgeon to access. The radiotherapist, if you've had hip implants and other things, it can make the liver radiotherapy a challenge. So those things are completely out of your control. But then ultimately, if all those things aside, you are genuinely given an option of either surgery or radiotherapy. Surgery, the, the complications are very immediate. After you've done your operation, you've taken the prostate away, you've joined the, the pipe, and you reach it onto the bladder. And you have a catheter through there while it heals. That catheter is usually there for about 10 days or so. And then it's removed. As soon as it's removed, you've just got your, your sphincter left. And that, the, the nerves that supply that sphincter will have been handled. When you handle nerves, the structures they feed stop working for a few weeks. So it'll take a while for that sphincter to keep back in. So you're likely to be leaking. Not necessarily, but you're likely to have some incontinence. And we've been encouraging pelvic floor exercises. And with that, your incontinence is likely to recover. But it won't, it's unlikely to necessarily be completely as it was before your surgery. You're likely to have some stress elements. If you cough or sneeze hard enough, you're going to get a little leak. Most men who have this surgery will end up wearing a precautionary pad. But certainly in the first few weeks, first few months, the incontinence can be quite uh, dramatic. And for some unlucky individuals, their, 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 their sphincter never fully recovers. And that may be because trying to do the surgery, the nerves that supply that sphincter, or the sphincter itself has been damaged. And that's not because of carelessness from the surgeon. These are structures that are actually not really very visible to the eye, particularly if there's a bit of bleeding, what have you. You do your best to preserve them, but statistically you're going to have some patients that are going to come away with damage to these structures. And if after a period of pelvic floor work, it doesn't recover, then there are further surgical uh, interventions that can be undertaken to recover continence. So the, the worry of incontinence shouldn't put you off because one would hope that it will recover either with pelvic floor work or sometimes with a secondary surgery. But if you want surgery, don't be put off by that. Surgery is what you should go for. Now, the other thing, of course, is, is, uh, is, is sexual function in general. After any operation, there, there can be an element of loss of uh, sexual function, loss of confidence, and you can get elements of erectile dysfunction after any surgery, wherever on the body. But it's very profound in regards to this type of surgery. Again, the nerves that supply the penis run around the prostate. And we, we try our best to preserve those by peeling them off the prostate. Again, in doing so, they are handled, so they stop working temporarily. And if they're damaged, they stop working for good. In the male, as you get older, your erections aren't as quite as confident and, and, and potent as they were when you were younger. And so if you damage them even just a little bit, it can be enough to completely write the erection off. But equally, in that period after surgery, the loss of confidence can be enough to affect your mojo, as it were. Your sexual drive can be affected. And then there's that loss of confidence. And then for your partner, there'll be this element of, oh, can I, can't I? I don't want to break him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want this falling apart. And if there's some elements of incontinence, in the bedroom, there's no, that, not for everybody, of course, but for most people, would be considered a bit of a turn off if the gentleman was to start urinating during intercourse. And so all these challenges come to bear, and a lot of people just walk away from sex and intimacy completely. And so part of the process of counselling for surgery, particularly, is about making sure that the individual and his partner are very much on board, very open-minded. Can be they've got to be talking about this thing from the get-go. So you've got to kind of redefine how intimacy is undertaken. Because in the end, even though you may not be able to get an erection, you should still be able to get an orgasm. Just a question of how you get there. And that will take a little bit of work. Okay. The next question is short and simple. Can men get urine infections too? Absolutely. So what you want with water is you want water to flow. When water's moving, it stays clean. As soon as it stops for a second, it starts to pick up microorganisms and infections can occur. 
So if you go into a stream, put a glass in, pull the water out, it'll look nice and clean. You go to a, a pond and do the same exercise and compare it, you'll see just how dirty the water is. So same is true in the urinary tract. Any obstruction to urine will allow some cooling and stagnation of urine. Infection can follow. Now, if we go back to that stream, dip our hand in and pull a stone out and feel the surface of that stone, you'll feel a slime on it. That's called a biofilm. And so we, if you get biofilms in the urinary tract, that will also promote bacteria formation. So if men have got kidney stones, that will be another cause of infection. So stones and obstruction. And when you think of obstruction, it's usually due to an overgrown prostate. So yes, infections can occur in men. But when they occur, they're what we, call, we consider complicated. So infection can either be simple or complicated. A simple infection is where the bacteria climb their way up the pipe and have got in. So it's very common in women, very rare in men because the length of the pipe makes the bacteria have got a long way to go. But secondary infection means there's an underlying problem in the urinary tract that has allowed that infection to occur. So things like stones in both sexes, prostate in the male, and other things like fistula between the bowel, cancers, all these things can also allow infections to occur. And those are what are called complicated UTIs. So in a male, they can get infections, but they're almost always complicated infection. There is something else that's driving it that we can treat and deal with. The next question is, I'm a 55-year-old man, and there is blood in my urine when I go to the toilet. What could it be? Well, you don't mess about. If you see blood anywhere where it shouldn't be, you need to be seeing your doctor straight away. Where blood is in the urine, we tend to think of it in whether it's painful or painless. Painless blood in the urine worries us and is associated with a 25% risk of an underlying cancer. If it isn't a cancer, it's usually just because you've bled from a vascular structure like an overgrown prostate. And it may be that you're a bit anticoagulated with a bit of aspirin or clopidogrel or warfarin or something for another health complaint that means a little bit of bleeding becomes profound. But a significant number might have an early tumour of their bladder, kidney or prostate, and they need to be seeing a urologist within two weeks to be getting that diagnosis sorted. If it's painful, then one normally thinks of an underlying infection and then what we call a hemorrhagic cystitis. It doesn't mean that infection, there might not be a cancer in the mix that might have driven this infection, but we get a little less anxious about uh, painful hematuria. But regardless, any blood in the urine will always be investigated. Those investigations will usually involve a CT or an ultrasound scan to check over the kidneys and a little camera inspection of the lining of the bladder using a tiny little catheter-side telescope, which takes about 30 seconds. Very quick and easy and straightforward. So the kind of take-home message is, if, if you are peeing blood at all, go straight away to the doctor, you know, don't hesitate. Yeah, absolutely. That's all we've got time for today, but come back next week for the final episode with Richard Viney. In the meantime, if you want more from Richard, he can be found at thebladderclinic.co.uk and you can find us at mailplus.co.uk.